welcome back to CM Conversations, the podcast from Charlton Morris, where we delve into the world of business to speak to interesting people doing particularly interesting things, either in the broader world of business or across the markets that we serve here. Um, I'm your host, Chris Holland, Head of Marketing at Charlton Morris. Today's episode sees, uh, well, saw me having a conversation with someone who does a job that I didn't know existed um, until we first made contact about halfway through last year, but was really interested to find out more about. Um, Today's chat is with um, a gentleman called Grant Hollis, who's a transaction liability team leader at CFC Underwriting. So that still might not have shed any more light on um, on what they do. But what Grant and his team do do is work for a business um, that provides specialist insurance on a range of mergers and acquisitions. So they come into a process to try and account for the unknown unknowns when an M&A deal has been agreed, which, you know, as you can imagine... When you think about the complexity of mergers and acquisitions that go ahead across you know a range of industries, um, is no easy task. So, I mean, during my conversation with Grant, I thought his perspective, you know, from the nuts and bolts of you know what actually goes into the legal side of mergers and acquisitions, to be really, really interesting, um, and hope that you, as as a listener to this, do as well. Um, as always, you know, we'd love to hear your feedback on this and we'd love to have you contribute to the conversation. Um, so please do get in touch using the email address in the description. Um, but yeah, for now, I uh, hope you enjoy my chat with Grant Hollis from CFC Underwriting. So, Grant, firstly, um, thank you very much uh, for, for agreeing to to have a chat with me today um, for, for CM Conversations. It's really appreciated. Um, I suppose, first of all, for everybody listening, um, I'd never really heard of, of the line of work that you're in. So do you want to give us a bit of an introduction to you, your business, and, and I suppose what, what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Chris, and, and good to speak to you. So I work for a company called CFC Underwriting, and we are a private equity-backed specialist insurer. And my role at CFC is in a line for reps and warranties insurance. So effectively, what we do is provide insurance on a range of mergers and acquisitions and ensure the representations and warranties in the underlying transaction documents. Effectively, what that means is we're insuring the effectiveness of M&A deals. So historically, this used to be done with an arrangement between the buyer and seller the insurance market has stepped in um, for various reasons to help, to help facilitate this. Right. Okay. So, uh, so on that then, am I, am I right in thinking, so are you, so in your role, are you sort of responsible for not assessing the validity of an acquisition? So, so you step in once the agreement has already been made to it to acquire a business. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. That's right, Chris. So, so where we come in the process is generally, the, the M&A deals, you know, these days largely happen by auction, um, although we do see a lot of proprietary acquisitions as well. And then we get involved once those heads of terms have been signed and once the parties have started to negotiate the acquisition agreements and have really done um, a range of their due diligence. So my role is to underwrite those deals and to underwrite the historic operations of, of the company. So what we do is, is provide insurance 
largely for the buyers of these businesses for any historic problems that the companies have experienced. So this can be anything from misstatements in their company's financials. It can be anything from a historic data breach or a loss of a key customer upon that deal closing. So it's a, wee, a real wide range of problems that can be uncovered whenever you buy a business. And what we do at CFC is provide insurance in the event that that merger or acquisition has problems because of the historic operations of the company. Right. Okay. So you are, I suppose, providing a bit of a, a bit of a safety net for, for the acquisition. You know, you sort of mitigating against. The, so, so people will know what they're getting into when they're acquiring a business. But you, you know, you're there to help provide that safety net just in case any of those historic issues were to come up again. And you know, it sort of helps for the acquiring business. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely cool. right, Chris. And, and, and what we do is provide coverage effectively for, for the unknown unknowns. Right. So, you know, whenever somebody buys a, a business, there, there can be a whole range of problems. You know, there might be inheriting historic environmental problems. There might be, you know, inheriting historic regulatory problems. But then also there's, you know, stuff in there that might not necessarily come out in the due diligence that's either intentionally being concealed by the sellers or that might be a latent problem in, you know, the, the, how the company's operated historically. And that's exactly what our insurance is. For. Right. So, I mean, that must be a, must be a huge job then for, for, for you guys to, I mean, where, where do you start? Yeah, it's, it's a good, uh, good question. So, I mean, we cover everything in our insurance from problems historically with their financial statements, material contracts, any environmental liabilities. So, literally the, the A to Z of, of the historic operations of, of the company. So we have access to the, the, the due diligence that's been undertaken by the buyer's advisors. So generally they'll have legal advice, financial tax, plus any specialist regulatory advice. We have, have our own lawyers who assist with the process as well. And we really get down into the weeds as, uh, into that historic operations of the company and, and look at what they've been doing for um, the, the history of their operations to try and find out if there's anything um, going on in, in, in that business. Right. And, and you mentioned, obviously, the, the lawyer side. And you've got, a, you've got a legal background as well, haven't you, coming into this? And... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So a lot of, um, a lot of underwriters in, in mergers and acquisitions insurance are, are lawyers by background. What we've done at CFC is, is try and diversify our team. So we brought in a specialist IP underwriter. We brought in a specialist... Um, Intellectual property, yeah, that's right. Okay. We brought in a chartered accountant who used to be an investment banker and we brought in a specialist oil and gas underwriter right. as well. So we really tried to kind of um, build out some specialism there because these deals are quite you know, specific in terms of what due diligence has been done. So it's very important for us to, to have those specialists at hand. And do you, I mean, obviously, not not asking for any ins and outs or confidential info, but I mean, do you work on, you mentioned oil and gas, but do you work on specific industries and markets or is it quite widespread, the type of businesses that you, you tend to see working with? Yeah, very widespread, Chris. And, and, and that's one of the interesting parts of the job. You know, we, we see everything from, you know, a business that will make, you know, it'll be a metal basher in the Midwest to a, a technology company on on the west coast that is just starting up and, and has had several rounds of venture capital funding so we see a, a real range um we get involved in in deals on the the small side of things so you know um mom and pop operations in in north america that are looking for private equity investment 
and equally we get involved in in some of those mega mergers that that you'll see um and that have taken place recently or, or might not have been announced yet right exciting that must be um that must be an exciting thing when you i suppose you see the work you're doing feature on the news yeah yeah it is it, it does happen occasionally <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so i mean what's your take on i suppose the the m a landscape at the moment um i mean I'm, I'm assuming that with the economy that that sort of thing fluctuates in terms of I, I don't know you know prospects what you know what's out there what's available but also yeah absolutely what shape yeah. The acquirers so it's, it's a really interesting one at the moment chris and there's kind of two um two sides about actually and, and both of them haven't kind of married up yet but i think from from speaking to some of our clients they do see those those two sides marrying up. But I think on the one side, you have a, a whole range of negative factors that should theoretically slow down deal flow. But then on the other side of it, we've seen a record year for, for mergers and acquisitions in the US. So last year, 2018, there was 6,800 M&A deals done in, in North America. And that's the largest year that they've had on record. You know, America's had 39, year, 39 quarters of, of consecutive growth over the past few years, as has the Eurozone and the UK. And we've seen those economies always experience um, economic growth in, in, in the past few years in, in terms of how they've grown year on, um, quarter on quarter. There are a, a lot of, um, you know, factors out there that, that are pushing against economic growth and, um, and, and deal flow, you know, Brexit being one of them the trade war between the US and China, yeah. a potential debt crisis on the horizon, disruptions in the EU, and broader geopolitical tensions as well, where a lot of countries are looking towards isolationist policies that will you know, potentially impact supply chains, will potentially lead to inflation. And those factors, there's a lot, lot going on there, You know, five or six key macroeconomic trends that are potentially going to slow down deal flow towards the end of this year or, or next year. However, that isn't something we've necessarily seen. You know, last year was a, was a record year for, for US M&A. In terms of the private equity sphere, you know, debt remains quite cheap in America. There's a lot of private equity capital out there. Um, but what that does mean is that it's quite hard for a lot of these private equity funds to identify good targets and identify good companies to buy. So very interesting time to be in, in M&A at the moment. There's a lot of headwinds out there. But despite that, we've, we've seen, you know, deals getting done and, um, and, and getting done very well. Interesting. So and what was that? How, sorry, I missed that part. How many quarters was it you said there'd been consecutive growth in, in the US? Yeah, so 39 quarters that the, um, they've had consecutive growth, which I think is, is a record. So, you know, it, it does kind of feel as if at some point there's, you know, that, that has to, to come to an end. And I'm assuming that, so that's obviously post-global recession. Absolutely, just yeah. Been growth on growth yeah. on growth. That's, yeah. that's, you can track that back to. I mean, it, it's interesting that you mentioned then, obviously the, and, and this, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, just something that I've, I've thought here, that obviously there are, the world is a bit of a tumultuous place at the moment. And you mentioned the sort of, to, 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 to that's a bit of an understatement potentially. <laughs> um, but... Um, and you mentioned obviously there's things like Brexit and lots of unknowns, um, and and that could potentially put off companies from making acquisitions. But could it be that companies might look to go down an inorganic growth route? 
before these sorts of things hit for for sort of consolidation, you know what I mean? To sort of be as strong as possible to then weather the storm, whether that being through, I don't know, diversifying service lines, diversifying assets, or maybe just taking out some competition so that when the bad times potentially do and will eventually hit, they're better place to get through it because they've got, I don't know, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, Is it... and that's something we've really seen, Chris, particularly with, um, so, so, so we were, either with, with private equity clients or, or corporate clients. So um, either listed companies or, you know, well-known household names out in, in, the, in the US. And what we've seen is a lot of corporate acquirers, so, so some big household names that you've seen, actually do a lot of defensive acquisitions, you know, so buying up smaller competitors to, to show some sort of growth on their balance sheet because they can't necessarily get that organically. Um, so, so we certainly have seen that, that, you know, um, when, when people are concerned about hard times, that theoretically you should think that the deal slows should down and should slow down, and to a large extent it will. There are certain industries and, and, and certain um, companies out there who, who will go on a, um, a, a bit of an acquisition spree when there is a, a slight downturn to, to demonstrate some element of, of growth. Yeah, I mean, so obviously with with our business, I mean, we cover industrial, medical, and, and life sciences, and I think in the medical space, it's it's a constant world of acquisitions. Yes, yeah. maybe more than the others, you know, because it's all about new technology and getting acquired. But it was interesting um, pre the sort of oil and gas downturn when 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 I think that was happening. I I'd, obviously you mentioned the term there, like defensive acquisition, uh, defensive acquisitions. That's obviously something that was going on there. Like people saw the crash coming and thought, look, maybe. Maybe my mom and pop, as you say, small business in West Texas isn't going to survive yeah. this, but maybe if I'm part of something yeah, bigger, absolutely. even if they are laying people off, then then maybe we'll just about get through it without having to close the doors. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. right. And one of the things that we're seeing at the moment is that, you know, the environment where there's a lot of private equity money out there, you know, this is trying to find a home in, in, in types of mergers and acquisitions. And it's actually quite hard for, for a lot of private equity funds to identify good good companies to buy at the moment. And as a consequence of that, the, the valuation and the prices of these companies get pushed up. So, you know, if, if people historically were paying 10 times an EBITDA multiple when buying it, they might now be paying 14 or 15 times. And right. as an insurer, that's an interesting position for us to be in because we are then potentially facing deals where they're potentially paid too much and, and are then looking for some form of recourse. So the general economics of a deal as well kind of um, forms part of our underwriting, you know, where you look at it from a common sense perspective to think, you know, has this company made any money historically? Why are they paying so much for it? You know, so, so that's part of the, the process as well there, Chris. Right, okay. I mean, that was an interesting point you said there as well, like saying it's hard to find good companies to buy at the moment. So does that mean that it's almost a, a seller's market then that if you are I don't, it, why, why is that why why is, is is that just sort of coincidence is it because i mean surely as new technology emerges in different markets it would just be acquired wouldn't it but is the sort of broader i don't know is the, are the broader things at play that that means that that's happening less or why why is it harder to find good companies yeah, to, to buy sure. i think it's purely because there's a lot of money um chasing chasing companies and and you know there's certain sectors that are um 
you know, quite attractive at the moment. And, and there's a lot of private equity, you know, funding out there. A lot of our private equity clients in, in, in North America are, are raising new funds and their investors expect a return for that. And, and, and to get a return, they need to find um, acquisitions to happen. And, you know, there's only um, so many businesses that, that, that you can buy. So I think it's a, a, a case yeah. of supply and demand at the moment. You know, debt is, is right. quite cheap in the US, which makes financing these acquisitions a lot easier as well. Um, so I think it's those kind of trends that are, are, are making it a bit of a seller's market at the moment. Right. Okay. So I suppose that's it. It's the it's a perfect time to launch something, is it? Then and, and get going with it and, and get your business sold and you know get out and buy your boat. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons you know people we, we've seen use reps and warranties insurance is that you know historically sellers used to have to leave aside money post sale in case there was any breaches of reps and warranties and what reps and warranties insurance does now is it allows them to effectively leave behind a very small pot of money and look to the insurance instead um so from a financial engineering perspective it makes the deal a lot more attractive and a lot smoother to execute right that's i've, I've i think that's the first time i've heard the term financial engineering i quite like that. that's cool <laughs> there you go. um and when you say sorry again just me being naive probably but what, when you say reps and warranties what's what's reps yeah sure so that's the, the representations and warranties right in, in right. agreement so in the uk um it's warranties and indemnities and they effectively speak to um they're effectively a set of statements around the the historic operations of the company right um, right. so they'll say you know the financial statements reflect in all material respects the historic operations of the company um and then if there's any problems with that particular rep that the sellers are making that's when we as as insurers step in so uh, with the aspect I suppose with with the sort of emergence of of companies like you guys and, and offering the service that you offer, because I know that it's not just this, is it? That CFC offering you, you you know you you offer insurance on a whole range of different different things, um, but I suppose you must facilitate more um, uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions, and you must make life easier for the buyers because. I suppose, like you said, if, 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 if you're sort of preparing for the unknowns from their side, then if they were previously having to do that themselves, then I'm, I'm assuming that they would have had to put a huge amount of money to one side occasionally. Yeah. And that, that could, I mean, could that even have impacted the validity of the acquisition itself with the amount of money they had to? I, to, I, to absolutely, to Chris. I, I think as well, what, what you're seeing now, you know, when we spoke before around some of those economic um you know, headwinds creates a lot of uncertainty. Um, and, and it really being a seller's market, you know, buyers just want to get in and, and, and get the deal done and, and make sure the parties are signed up so they can acquire the business. And, and what we um, have really sold ourselves on is, is using this as a deal facilitation tool. So actually we can make the process of, of buying a business a, a lot smoother um, than, you know, it might have historically been. And, and it's kind of using the insurance and, and using representations and warranties insurance as a deal facilitation tool as well um, to, to help get those deals through. And what we've seen is a lot of private equity clients um, and a lot of our corporate clients really use it um, because of some of those uncertainties in the market and, and wanting to get deals done quite quickly. So if a seller's got, if a seller, if a, a company looking to sell have maybe got a list of suitors, then the buyer having you guys on side could actually make them 
put, push them to the front of that queue, as it were. Yeah. You know, they could make, yeah, could, because it'll get done faster. It, it, and, and obviously, if you're selling your business, you, you want that done quickly, don't you? You don't want it to be a long, drawn-out, three, four, five, long, year-long process. Absolutely. You want it to, to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for sellers as well, you know, what this means is, rather than leaving their, um, you know, rather than leaving 10 million dollars behind on a on a deal they can you know leave a much smaller amount and then as you mentioned before um you know once that company saw you know go off and, and, and buy that boat that they've worked hard for <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah i think we're all we're all looking forward to our <laughs> and <laughs> so when i mean obviously you, uh, you you don't come into the process or perhaps you do sometimes, but you mentioned the majority of the time you come into the process sort of after the agreement's already been made for, for the acquisition to, to be done. Um, but, I mean, what what sort of things, you've always got very good insight into this, what sort of things sort of would, should people look out for or, or, or would people look out for when analysing a proposition or a potential acquisition? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, so whenever, they, you know, whenever, we work with buyers who require businesses. We'd expect them to, to kick the tires on a, on a number of areas and where we see claims as, as insurers, you know, we, we would expect the, the, the diligence to have been done as well. Um, so we see them, you know, we would expect them to, to kick the tires on, you know, so that they know that when they buy the business, that the customers that the company currently have are going to be there after that acquisition and after they bought the company. So there's no loss in revenue. You know, we'd expect them to, to kick the tires on, on the financial statements to really get in there and, you know, rather than just looking at the headline numbers, really drill down into how have you arrived at this figure for the revenue and track that back through key customers and, and make sure those numbers stack up. Depending on the industry as well, you know, it, it, it really varies. So when we work with, with, with guys on the West Coast who are buying software businesses, we'd expect some kind of technology diligence to look for any potential flaws or glitches in that software or the use of any sort of open source code or, or any problem that there might be with that underlying software. If the guys are buying, you know, a metal basher up in Detroit, we'd expect some kind of review of, of the equipment and assets of the business. So, you know, when you go on and, and buy this business that makes widgets that the equipment can convert the widgets as you'd expect so it's really working through that whole list of issues and, and there can be a number and it varies um really sector by sector but effectively um you know we'd expect them to to kick the tires on a on a number of areas when when buying a business and i suppose one area that i mean last year um i mean i think everybody in europe at least really enjoyed the gdpr process and <laughs> And are looking forward to to that coming coming up again um, when when the powers that be decide that there's another change for that. And uh, I mean, there's there's different arguments as to um, when something similar is going to come in in the US and maybe even globally. But that's another conversation. But how big a factor is data quality and data validity in in sort of M and A? Yeah, it, it really is, Chris. And, and you know, it's, um, that's something we work with our clients on. So if it might be their first time purchasing insurance, you know, we'll work with them to say, look, we, we would expect you guys to get in third party advisors as part of your diligence process. So, you know, we'd expect accountants to, to review the financials. We'd expect their tax advisors to, to have a look at historic tax operations. And we'd really expect a, a quality due diligence process done there. However, 
because we work with a range of clients, their, their diligence process varies. And we work with some um, large corporates in, in North America who have that expertise in-house. You know, they, they might have had a, a partner in a big four county firm come in-house who's been a specialist in this and, you know, might not necessarily have that glossy report for us to read, but I'll have that expertise in-house. So it's really about us um, understanding the, the buyer's knowledge and understanding their process and, and how they get comfortable in their acquisitions as well. And on the on the data piece as well, then, does that extend to, obviously, the quality of the financial data and the actual sort of business side of it, but does that, ex, the quality of, you know, customer data in the sort of B2C world as well? And, you know, companies, are, are they being looked at more, or, or, or are the, the quality and the validity of the data on their customer databases, is that being put under the microscope a little bit more since GDPR and as we become, you know, a lot more data conscious? Yeah, it, it certainly is. And, and you know, when um, we certainly come across that issue when, whenever we are underwriting transactions, you know, how are these guys keeping their data secure? How is it kept safe? And, and that's particularly pertinent in areas where you have a lot of sensitive information industry which is highly regulated out in the US um, where that, that data is expected to, to be kept confidential and, and we've seen various class actions in there for you know either erroneous disclosure of data or historic problems where that data is being leaked or, or not protected properly so yeah you're absolutely right Chris it is a, is a massive area to, to, to be aware of. Yeah it's, it's interesting as well and I suppose for some of our clients in the medical space working in the US um, there's an awful lot from our side going on in, in terms of of AI, you know, businesses using AI, which is obviously so reliant on data, but in the private healthcare market in the US, that data is so fragmented between hospitals or between companies, then I feel like that's a challenge that a lot of companies, both who are looking to be acquired and who aren't, and are just looking to leverage that data are sort of going through, but it's, it's a really interesting point. Um, but Look, I mean, Grant, that's, I, I think that's, that's a lot of questions from me and, and um, I sort of really appreciate your time with this. Um, I'm sure that from, from, from when we get the, everybody listening to this, um, there'll probably be a lot more questions coming in. So I might be uh, knocking on your door again and asking to, to do a follow-up to, to address some yeah, of Yeah, no those, bother. But... Well, very good to, to speak to you, Chris, and, and more than happy to, to chat again. So that was Grant Hollis from CFC Underwriting talking about what he and his team look at when they're underwriting M&A activities in the range of different markets that they serve and you know how they look to prepare for the unknown unknowns. Um, what did you think? You know, Have you been through a, a merger or acquisition process and encountered the issues that Grant mentioned? Um, now, was I alone in my <laughs> ignorance of the existence of this role um, in the, the M&A process? Uh, you know, we, we are really, really interested in hearing your comments and, and thoughts on this conversation and any of the others in the series. Um, so please do get in touch with us and offer your thoughts using the email in the description. Um, that's all from me for today um, and from CM Conversations. So until next time, thanks a lot for listening and thanks again to Grant from CFC Underwriting.